everybody, it's Rich. Welcome, or welcome back, to the Access Church Podcast. Hey, at the end of this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our YouTube channel, where you'll find our complete Sunday experience with music, as well as great content for kids and students. Visit accesschurch.com to keep up with everything going on around here at Access, and subscribe to our email list. We'll send you helpful suggestions each week designed to help you make friends, grow in faith, and live with purpose. Most importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. Enjoy. Well, I want to start by saying happy Veterans Day and thank you to all of you who have served or are serving. Yes, you can. There was a little silent clap there. You can do this. Um, We are so grateful for your service, and um, we are so glad that you would be willing to um, give not just your time, but to risk your lives for the sake of our nation. And each year, Veterans Day, if I scroll Facebook a little bit, I'm just amazed at how many of you have served that I didn't realize, or had family members, parents, brothers, sisters that served. And uh, we're just so grateful for all that. And for many of us, we are marked by your sacrifice, like your willingness to step forward and to do something hard has made an impression on those of us who've not served. And um, we could probably all stand up and talk about a veteran who has made an impact in our lives or someone that we've admired. And um, I wanna tell you just a quick little bit about my uncle John, one of the veterans in my family, lots of veterans in my family. Um, I'm the youngest of four kids. I'm also the youngest of 18 cousins. And so um, everybody in my family, like I'm just sort of like the surprise that came along a little bit late. So when I tell people that my dad was a World War II veteran, they always look at me like, somehow I might have gotten the details mixed up, you know? And I'm like, no, really, my dad, if my dad were alive today, he would be 108 years old. So um, my dad was a World War II veteran. My uncles were World War II veterans. And um, my Uncle John, and they're, they're, my Uncle John, my Uncle Tommy, they both served World War II. Kind of an interesting story. Um, my grandfather was an itinerant method evangelist. And so he would go to, from town to town, and he would preach what back in these days uh, were tent revival meetings. And he would oftentimes start a Methodist church in the towns in which he visited. And originally from the Jacksonville area, he and my grandmother were doing a revival in Pompano Beach, Florida, and they decided that they liked it down there. They liked the weather. They liked the people. They started a church in Pompano Beach, and they would stay. And so um, that's where I was born, and that's where I grew up. But um, in uh, 19, let's see, I want to get my years right. So about 1937, my grandfather, again, an itinerant evangelist, so they were not people of means to begin with. In 1937, um, my grandfather died suddenly. And uh, that left my grandmother with seven children in the heart of the Depression before there was any kind of really social welfare system. And um, there actually was a social welfare system. It was just through the church and through the community who did an amazing job of um, helping her continue to raise those seven children. But if you can imagine, um, her sources of income while raising these seven children, they lived in a three-bedroom house, one bathroom, three bedrooms, and she rented out one of the bedrooms because 
You got lots of room when you got seven kids in a three bedroom house. Why not rent out one of the bedrooms? She took in laundry for other people and um, she raised chickens and they sold the eggs from the chickens. Those are really their three primary sources of income. And so all kinds of stories from my mom and my uncles about um, growing up like really poor during the depression and some of the challenges that they faced. In fact, one example is... Um, when my uncle, so when my uh, grandfather died, my uncle was 10 years old and he uh, went to a local farmer and he said, can I farm uh, one acre of your land? And then when I sell my crop, I will give you a share of the proceeds. And uh, the farmer, of course, is a small town, knew his story, knew his family, said, absolutely. So he farmed that one acre as a 10 year old boy. Sixth grade. So that fall, uh, he missed several weeks of school. And when he came back to school after being out of school that fall, barefoot, by the way, because they couldn't afford shoes. Um, when he came back to school that fall, the teacher, his first day back, the teacher said, John Whitworth, where have you been? And he said, ma'am, I'm sorry, but it's harvest season and I have a family to feed. At the age of 10, when my, uh, when my uncle John and his brother Tommy, when they were drafted for World War II, um, they got to basic training and they were issued the very first pair of store-bought clothing they had ever had in their lives, including the first ever pair of store-bought underwear. My grandmother had been making all of their clothing from used chicken feed sacks. And um, if you can imagine underwear made from chicken feed sacks, I don't know, it doesn't sound so great to me, but they actually wrote home to my grandmother and asked her to send some of their underwear from home because they didn't like the store-bought underwear that the army had given them. If you, if you have spent time with this generation, we call them the greatest generation. Some people call them, the, you know, they're, they're, we're admiring all that they accomplished because we've heard the stories, right? We've heard the stories from our grandparents or from our aunts and uncles of how they faced difficulty and how they overcame that difficulty. And um, many of the stories that we know from our grandparents uh, or people of that generation are the stories that are told at their memorial service because the reality is they didn't share a lot of those stories themselves, right? Other people knew those stories about them. Other people shared those stories about them. And what became their legacy or what we remember about them or what we say about someone after their life has passed many times boils down to this. Our legacy boils down to how well did we respond to the difficult challenges that life brought our way? We all face difficulty, we all face hardship, but when we think about legacy, when we think about the stories that will be told about us when we are gone, when we think about the ways that our lives will mark someone else's life, we think really about how we will overcome the difficulties, the challenges that were brought our way. My uncle, by the way, continued to farm his entire life. And um, when he died uh, about 20 years ago, uh, he was the second largest landowner in Palm Beach County, Florida, if you can imagine that. And he was driven, he was driven not to be wealthy, but he was driven to take care of his family. The same thing that drove him as a 10-year-old, drove him his entire life. I watched him take care, make sure that everyone in his family was cared for. And he cared for my grandmother who lived to be 98 years old. He cared for her right up until the day she died and made sure from the time he was 10 until the time she died that she had everything that 
she needed. That was a vision that he had for his life, but it was something that was born out of difficult circumstances. And uh, some of us were at Seamark Ranch yesterday and we were pulling weeds and some of y'all brought your kids with you, which I think is just fantastic. And the kids are learning to do hard things and kids don't want to do hard things. And I don't want to do hard things, but in the midst of doing hard things, we overcome these things. And this is really what refines us, what builds our character and really helps us to decide, is this vision that I'm chasing, is it worth it. So that's why we're in this series right now. The series is called Not Coming Down. And um, this is a series where we're looking at the story of Nehemiah and some of the Israelites, the remnant of Israel, if you will, that was left behind in Israel, who helped him rebuild the wall for Jerusalem. Last week, we talked about why the wall was so important, but this was a vision that God had given Nehemiah. And I've been encouraging you, if you're just joining us, this is week three, I've been encouraging you over the last couple of weeks to think about what God's vision might be for your life, what your vision might be for your life, and how these integrate. And um, one of the phrases that we've used, we've talked about this, this is taken from a, a pastor named Bill Hybels. Bill Hybels called it, your holy discontent. When you look at the world as it is, and you see this is not all that it could be, and this is not all that it should be. And there's a tension in your way of thinking between the way things are and the way that they could be, between the way things are and the way that they should be. Like there's a should that's involved with your holy discontent. Like this is not the way God designed us. This is not the way God designed our world. And I need to be a part of bringing this back to or pointing this back to God. And so for Nehemiah, it was that the wall in Jerusalem was destroyed and that Jerusalem as a city and the Israelites there as a people, they were living with no defense and no sense of identity and no sense of purpose, which was a huge problem because God had placed Israel at the crossroads of the ancient world for one purpose. And that was to be a light to the world, a light to the nations. And so as we looked at the story of Nehemiah, just to do a quick review, a couple of things we talked about. One of them was that we saw in the very first chapter how Nehemiah's heart was broken. He had this holy discontent. And then he began to pray. He began to pray for opportunities. And while he was praying, he also planned. He didn't just wait. He planned. He made plans for what would happen if God were to answer his prayers. And so the first thing we took away from that is pray for opportunities and plan as if you expect God to answer your prayers. And then last week we talked about this important word, wow. Wow is a really important word. And um, Stephanie and I had an opportunity even this week to, you know, try this out. When someone in your family says, I have an idea or I have a vision, we so quickly are tempted to go to the word how. Like, how is that actually going to play out? Like, how is, it's just, it's natural. We're problem solvers. We want to figure this out. We know that things don't come easily. So we want to be prepared for the challenges ahead. But the reality is that we can how a vision to death. And so when someone shares a vision with you, one of the first things we want to say is, wow, wow. And, and really give that vision room to breathe. Imagine for a moment if that vision were to become a reality. Even if it seems like that vision is daunting or it's difficult or it's just, you know, maybe it's a vision for your life. 
that you've been the one that has been saying how, how, how for too long, and you've not given that vision room to breathe. So wow is a word that gives that vision room to breathe. And then we talked about the fact that not only should we say wow, but we should say not how, but who. Who? Who is going to make the Because the reality is that we're responsible to do what we can do. And then we lay all of our effort, we lay all of our time, we lay it all in front of God and we say, okay, God, I'm gonna trust you to do what only you can do. I'll do what I can do and then I'm gonna trust you to do what only you can do. Because the reality is that we have been given a vision for our lives. And, and I recognize that for many of us, we're here today and we think, I don't know, vision sounds like something for, you know, someone who's leading something really big, someone who's in charge of something important. And I'm just trying to get through the day. But I believe with all my heart that God has designed you. He has designed you. You didn't just happen. God has designed you on purpose and with a purpose. And you should be clear about what that purpose is. And you should be asking God on a continual basis, God, how does my vision for my life align with your vision for my life? How can I make sure that the things that I'm pursuing are in line with what you want for my life? And we, we talked about last week, this idea that, that God had designed Israel to be a light to the nations. And then Jesus came along and Jesus said this. He said, you are the light of the world. Now, when he said this, we need to remember for a moment, when Jesus said this, this is in Matthew chapter five. This is pretty early in Jesus' ministry. And Jesus is speaking to really a ragtag group of people, if we just want to be honest. I mean, he was not speaking to people who were CEOs, who were leaders of culture, leaders of the time. They were, they were a group of people that you might have stood on the sidelines and you might have thought, really, Jesus? Like this group? They're the light of the world. They're gonna be the ones to light up the world. And what's beautiful about this to me is I love the fact Jesus was not speaking to who they were in that moment. Jesus was speaking to who they could be and who they should be. That Jesus had a vision for his followers and Jesus has a vision for you, if you're a follower of his, to be light in this dark world. And that, that right there gives you purpose and gives you mission for your life. And then Paul, if you're familiar with Paul, Paul came along, he wrote about half the New Testament. Paul was someone who actually hated Christians. He pursued Christians, he chased them down, he tried to see them put to death until he met Jesus. <laughs> and then Jesus just completely transformed his life. And Paul began to plant churches and he began to tell people about Jesus. And if you've read any of Paul's letters, you know that the churches that Paul planted, they were full of people who were trying to figure out what it looked like to follow God. But at the same time, they were a mess. Like there was some wacky stuff going on in some of these churches. And a lot of these people, they were not behaving in any way, the way that you would think that followers of Jesus Christ should behave. And yet Paul, when he wrote to them, he repeatedly addressed them like this. He said things like this. This is the very beginning of his letter to the church in Rome. So in Romans chapter one, he writes this. He says, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Now, if you've grown up reading the Bible, maybe you've just gotten kind of used to reading these kinds of things. And you're, this is just Paul's greeting. I'm gonna get to like the real stuff. But pause for a moment here. 
this, he's writing this to people that were not, he wasn't writing this to, you know, St. Paul, that'd be him. He wasn't writing this to St. John. He wasn't writing this to St. Mark. He was writing this to people that were really messed up. When you and I think of saints, we think of like maybe in our modern era, like St. Teresa, you know, but we don't think about you and me, but this is the way Paul addressed the church. And again, it wasn't necessarily because they were acting like saints. It was because he had a vision for their lives. He had a vision for what could be and what should be, that they could be saints, Saint literally means set apart. It's the, it's the same root as for the word holy. And when we think of holy, we think of only God as holy. But holy really means set apart, different, distinct. And Paul's saying, you, you, are, you are called to something different from your neighbors. You're called to something different from your friends and your coworkers. You've been set apart. Your life is different. You, you might cheer for the same football team. You might have the same interests or the same hobbies. You might like to go do the same things together, but you're not the same. You are holy. You are set apart. You are called to be a saint. And that means that the vision that God has for your life is very different from the vision that he has for someone else's life. Now, if you're here today and you would say that you're not a Jesus follower, maybe you'd even call yourself a skeptic. I want you to know we are so glad you're here. We actually designed this church from the very beginning to be a church that people who are skeptical of faith would love to attend because there'd be something about this group of people that you would want to be a part of and you would feel welcomed here and you'd feel invited to explore. Matter of fact, we've said from the very beginning, we don't wanna just tell people what to think. We wanna help people explore faith on their own and come to a faith of their own. And, and I think that this series can be really helpful for you if you're skeptical, if you're someone who's not a follower of Jesus, because I think that just as simple exercises that we've been walking through over these last couple of weeks about really sitting down and being intentional about your life, I think that can benefit you whether you're a follower of Jesus or not. But if you really want to explore the ultimate purpose for your life, for what you were designed for, then you have to start to take a look at Jesus and what he's called you to, because I believe with all my heart that God has designed you uniquely and that he has a purpose for your life. And that that purpose is aligned with his purpose. And we know that, that Jesus, that the very purpose of his life was to seek and save the lost. And so my purpose in life is to seek and save the lost. We said last week that Israel was to be a light that you and I are to be a light. And that means that everywhere I go, my life is a light that points back to God. And so that means we have to ask ourselves the question, what, what am I doing or what are you doing that can only be done by a Jesus follower? This is one of those guardrails questions. This is one of those questions that keeps you kind of on track in life. Now that doesn't mean you can't be a chemistry teacher. That doesn't mean you can't be a real estate agent. I'm not proposing that. I'm saying that as you approach real estate, as you approach teaching young people, that you're doing it in a way that only a Jesus follower can do because that's who you are. And that's the mission that you are called to. So also last week, we looked at this idea that Nehemiah was working on the wall and along came Sanballat. 
And Sanballat is the bad guy in the story. He's jealous of Nehemiah. He's threatened by Nehemiah. He wants to do everything to interrupt the work. And he tries several things along the way. He tries to distract people. He tries to discourage people. He tries to make them afraid of, uh, of enemy combatants, to attacking them while they're working on the wall. And finally, they try to go after Nehemiah himself and to bring him down, to call, literally call him down from his work on the wall. And Nehemiah responds with this. He says, I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And I want you to remember that phrase as you are facing discouragement and distractions and danger, as you're facing fear, I want you to say, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. So gave you this exercise. I'm gonna keep putting it in front of you because I know most of you still have not done it, but we're gonna keep putting this exercise in front of you. I want you to write down on a piece of paper, December 31st, 2026, okay? Three years from now. And I want you to walk through this exercise of doing um, a vision map or a mind map. I want you to think through some different categories in your life. And I'm just suggesting if you hear key relationships in your life, marriage and parenting, what is your faith look like? How would you describe these things three years from now? Or if someone else were to observe your life and they were to write an article about you, you know, you, 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 once in a while we see like some interview with a celebrity or a business leader. And we like, I've always wanted to know kind of like what's going on behind the scenes. And um, so you read this article about this business leader and, and the journalist, if it's a good journalist, they've not just interviewed the person, they've followed them around for a few days. They've talked to a lot of the people that work with this individual and they've come up with kind of a profile of this person. And you say, what is it people are saying about this person? At this point in time, imagine three years from now, someone writes a profile on your life and, and you're to read this three years from now. What does it read like? What does it look like? What do you want it to look like? And this is just the very first step. We say three years because um, it gives a sense of urgency to what we're pursuing. And yet it's far enough away, three years far enough away that we can actually dream big a little bit. But this is really just the first step to the legacy question. The legacy question is, what will you be remembered for? What will they be the stories that people tell about you when you're gone? And I know that's like really morbid to bring up, but honestly, the last I checked, um, the mortality rate is still 100% in the United States, which is shocking really that we haven't, with all of modern medicine, but still 100%. So at some point, people are going to talk about you after you're gone, what would you want them to say? And obviously, you know, uh, I'm gonna, I suppose you could write out a script and give it to your kids and, you know, probably they won't follow that script. Probably they will talk about what they remember most from the difficulties that you faced and how you overcame them. What did it look like for you to do something significant what did you accomplish that mattered? And I think what you'll find if you really give this some thought, you spend some time writing this out and thinking about it, that um, the work accomplishments will fade pretty quickly. The athletic accomplishments will fade pretty quickly. A lot of the things will fade pretty quickly. It will come down to relationships and it will come down to faith. 
and it will come down to impact in other people's lives. So let's look at uh, the book of Nehemiah one more time and let's take a peek at uh, this point in the story where the wall has now been completed. So we're kind of jumping around in the story a little bit, but we're gonna jump ahead here to Nehemiah chapter eight and the wall has been completed and it's shortly before the Jewish new year. And um, so everyone had finished the wall and then honestly, without a lot of fanfare, they had gone back to their farms, they'd gone back to their houses and uh, they just really were kind of catching up on life because when it was time to build the wall, they had dropped everything and stopped everything to focus on building the wall. And now they're kind of catching up a little bit, but the Jewish new year comes along and it's a holiday and it's a time for everyone to um, just kind of sit down and enjoy family for a little bit. And the Jewish people do this. And this is an interesting chapter here, chapter eight of the book of Nehemiah. And it starts off like this, all the people came together as one in the square. They weren't called together. Nehemiah didn't rally them. There wasn't a, um, a, a, somebody on a, an authority figure that said, you must come together. We're gonna meet you know, at sunrise in the square. It was almost as if the people decided on their own, you know what, we just have to like mark this moment somehow. We have, we've accomplished something big. We rebuilt the wall around our city. And this needs to be marked. And so they come together as one in the square before the Watergate. They told, as not, not Watergate, like we think of different Watergate. Um, they told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud, now pay attention to this, from daybreak till noon. That's how long a good sermon lasts, okay? From daybreak till noon for, for six hours, for six hours, he read aloud from the book of the law, which was Leviticus. How many of you have read Leviticus for six hours straight? None of us, right? He read from the book of the law for six hours as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of men, women, and children, others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively, elbow someone, attentively to the book of the law. Now here, here's what I think is just really interesting about this. There's several things that we should note from this quick picture. Something really big has been accomplished. And the people feel a need to mark this moment. Now, I don't know that they knew that we would be talking about this or reading about this 2,500 years later, but they, they felt like this is significant. And they came together, but what they did when they came together was they read from the word of God, which caused them to focus on what it means to have a relationship with your heavenly father. They read from the word of God that talked about what it means for us to have a relationship with their heavenly father. And this passage goes on and there's, there's more that we don't have time to read this morning. But what's fascinating about this is nowhere in chapter eight, nowhere in this is the wall mentioned. Instead, what's mentioned is that the people of Israel begin to 
really think about their relationship with God. And they begin to recognize that there is a deep need for God in their lives. And they begin to weep and they begin to mourn and they begin to repent and confess and turn back to God because they realized for so long they had been living apart from God. And now this great work has been accomplished. But when they gather to talk about it, they actually don't talk about the wall. You would think that, you know, if we were to plan this, we would have like a little award ceremony, right? And we'd be like, hey, I just want to call up, you know, uh, Gene, one of the most improved, you know, when we started this project, Gene didn't know anything about carpentry, but he did such a great job. Everybody, you know, good job, Gene. You know, everybody like, we would be like thinking about, wow, we should really like honor this moment by thinking about the thing that we have done. But the people of God, when they really pulled out the word of God and reflected on God, they instead had their attention turned not to this project, but to the one who gave them the vision in the first place. See, this is one way that you know it's a God-ordained vision because the end of every God-ordained vision is God. If your life is lived in a God-ordained way, if you live out your life the way that God has ordained or the way that God has designed your life, when you live your life out in such a way, when people gather to talk about you at the end of your life, they'll end up talking about God. It won't just be remembering you and what you've accomplished. It will be remembering how God used you to do something in them. That just gives me chills. Just think about that. Imagine the people you love most, the people you care about the most, the people you've invested in the most, when they gather to talk about you, they're more excited about how God used you to do something in their life because you were an instrument. You were a tool. You were a vessel that God used in their life. That's how I want to be remembered. I want to be remembered as a vessel, as an empty tool that God used in the lives of other people because the end of a God-ordained vision isn't me and it isn't the project, isn't the job. It wasn't the wall. The end of a God-ordained vision is God. It points to God. And I want my life to point to God. And I want your life to point to God. Because God has said, you are the light of the world. And I want your life to shine in such a way that you are the light of the world. Now, I know you're thinking, you don't know my life. You don't know my story. You don't know. And let me tell you, that voice, that is not the voice of your heavenly father. That is the voice of Satan who says that to you on a regular basis that you're not good enough, that your life is messed up, that the things that have happened to you, that the things that you've done to other people, 
that the things that you might very well be guilty of, but the things that have happened in your life are things that somehow mean that God can't use you. And I wanna tell you, God can use you. God's business is redemption and restoration and taking things that are broken and making them new, that he makes beauty out of the ashes. And so no matter how hard your story is, no matter how difficult it's been, no matter what your struggle and your challenges that you bring before God, God has a vision to use you powerfully in the lives of other people. And so if I can for a minute, I just wanna share my vivid vision for you. My vision for you as your pastor. And, and you know what? I don't get to be your pastor because somebody slapped a title in front of my name. You have to allow me to be your pastor. So, so please understand, like I, I'm not, this is not, I don't, I don't assume any outsized voice in your life. You, you, you do whatever you want. You don't have to do anything I tell you. But if you will allow me to be your pastor, I have a vision for your life. I, I want, first of all, for you to have big faith in a big God. <laughs> this is my vision for you. This is my vision for me. This is a vision for us. That together we would grow big faith in a big God. That means that when difficult times seem like they're just going to overwhelm us, our faith grows bigger. People say sometimes, hey, where do we go deep here at Access Church? And I'm like, I don't know if you want deep, honestly. I mean, I know what you mean. Some people, when they say deep, they mean smart. They mean complicated. Like, where do we get complicated? Why don't we talk about the Greek and like really confuse each other, you know? Deep, deep means the way my dad taught me how to swim. Anybody else have a dad like this? Swim, that was how I got taught how to swim. There was a deep end of the pool, there was a shallow end of the pool. I liked the shallow end of the pool, it was safe. I could touch the bottom, I could hang on to the edge. When my dad decided it was time for me to learn how to swim, he just threw me in the deep end. Deep means you can't touch. Deep means you're in over your head. But deep means in the middle of that, that God builds something in you because God is your only hope and God is your only focus. And so you become dependent on him and you develop a big faith in a big God, a God who is great and a God who is good. My vision for you is that you would be part of authentic community, that you would have relationships with other believers who are cheering you on, who are praying for you, who are with you in the difficult times and they're cheering for you in the good times. That you'd be with a group of people who are honest and real about life. That's why we say authentic community. That you'd be connected with other people who aren't just friends, but who lead you toward big faith and a big God. My, my hope for you, my prayer for you, my vision for you is that you would be inspiring people to follow Jesus. We say that that's our, our vision as a church, that we would inspire people to follow Jesus. That's what we want Access Church to do. But that means that we're made up of a whole bunch of people, individuals, like 
The corporation can't inspire people to follow Jesus. You and I as individuals, we're inspiring people to follow Jesus. I told a story last week about Bob, my best friend who's an airline pilot, and he does it from the cockpit of an airplane. He inspires people to follow Jesus. How? Well, he talks about the peace that he has in Jesus. He talks about the direction that his life has gained because of Jesus. He talks about how his life was messed up before, but has gained hope and purpose and direction because of what Jesus has done in his life. And you can do the same thing. I want your life to inspire people to follow Jesus. Why? Because if you're a Jesus follower, if you're following Jesus, people should be inspired by how that makes a difference in your life. That should be inspiring them to see you follow Jesus, to see you trust him when life is hard. Sometimes life hits us with things we're not expecting and we think, why God, why? Well, sometimes the why, sometimes the why is so that the world can see your faith on display in the midst of something difficult. I want your life to inspire others to follow Jesus. I, my, my hope, my prayer, my vision for you is that you would be surrendered in every way. That you'd be surrendered on your calendar to Jesus. That the way you arrange your calendar would prioritize Jesus. That the way you arrange your calendar would prioritize leading your kids toward big faith in a big God, which means you're making time in your week to talk about things of faith with your kids. You're making time in your week to bring your kids to church. I know I'm asking a lot, but honestly, we, we work so hard to work in the soccer schedule and the work schedule and all the other things that sometimes it's so crowded, there's no more room to think about or talk about God. And some of your kids are going to graduate from high school and they're going to be an amazing athlete. But when their marriage hits the rocks in their 30s, that won't matter. How much time they spend on the soccer field won't matter. But I want you to lead them into a relationship with Jesus. I want you to surrender your calendar to your heavenly father. I want you to surrender your relationships to your heavenly father, that you're just willing to say, I am open-handed and I'm surrendering everything to you, God. I want you to surrender your finances. I want you to say, God, this is all yours because you've given it to me. You gave me this job. You've given me these promotions. You've given me these raises. I am rich and it is because of what you have given me and I want to give back to you out of gratitude for all that you've given me. I want you to surrender your finances to him. I want you to surrender your worship to him. I, I'm not, we're not all the same. We're not all wired the same. Some of us are gonna raise our hands and some of us are gonna move around while the music's going and some of us aren't, it's just personality. So please don't hear me. I'm, I'm one of those, I move around and I'm singing and I'm, I'm not judging anybody by whether you look the way I look when I'm worshiping God. But on the inside, I want you to be surrendered and worship to God, recognizing his place in your life. I want you to experience intimacy with God. I want you to get to a place where just being alone with God is really something special for you. And most of us get there by being thrown in the deep end. Most of us get there through difficult times. 
But if you've spoken with someone who's gotten there, who finds joy, not in what God can give you, but just joy in God. It's a wonderful place to be and it's what I want for you as your pastor. That's my vision for you. Now, the, the cool thing is that, can you imagine? Can you imagine if, if we were all experiencing this and we're all doing this together as a community, the impact that we could have as a church? Because when you get a bunch of people together who are similarly impacted by their heavenly father, then, then as a church, as a group of people, we begin to have an overflow, have an impact on the community around us. And so here's my vision for us as a church. I'm gonna talk about vision. I'm talking about us individually as a life, but I also want you to know what my vision is for us as a church and where I would love to see us go over the next three years. First of all, I think about Sundays, probably like you do. When I think about Access Church, I think about Sundays and there is energy on Sundays. And there's energy in the hallway. The guest experience team has energy. The band has energy. Like you just feel it when you come into this place and people are here and they enjoy being here and, they, and, they're, and they're, nobody's in a hurry to leave because we just find that this is a place that brings us energy. Why? Where does that come from? Well, we have a phrase here that says, we say it's personal. This whole church thing for us, it's not just ritual it's not just church for the sake of doing church. It's church for the people that we love. It's church for our kids. We have, we're here on purpose on Sunday, not to teach our kids what to think, but to set an anchor in their hearts for our sons and our daughters and our grandchildren. We're here because it's personal. We're here for our friends and neighbors that are, that are possibly walking up the sidewalk this week. I remember I'd been inviting one of my neighbors to church for months and they, they never really gave me, you know, it was very sort of like, oh, that's nice. It's nice that you enjoy your church. Like it was never a no, but it was far from a yes. And then finally I got a yes. Finally I got a yeah. All right, I think we're gonna come. And I remember being out front, setting up the signs on the sidewalk and just how different it felt that day. Oh, they're gonna, they're gonna come today. They're gonna come today. I want everything to be perfect. I want Marino in the parking lot. I want him waving at everybody, you know. I want Joe welcoming people as they come up the sidewalk. I want everybody, you know, like I want everything to be perfect, right? And then, you know, the text message, oh yeah, we're not gonna make it this Sunday. Anybody ever gotten that? Oh, not this Sunday, but next Sunday. Again and again, and finally, probably the third or fourth Sunday that they were going to come, they finally came and I was caught off guard. You know, I'm just out there on the sidewalk and I'm getting a conversation with somebody and then I look over my shoulder and here they come, walking up the sidewalk with their kids. And it's in that moment where like everything matters. The energy that we talk about in the room, this is what it's all about because it's not about me and it's not about you. It's about the lost sheep, it's about people who've not yet discovered how much God loves them and their vision for his life. And it's that passion and that energy that drives us. My vision for us is that guests would show up on Sunday and they would have such a great experience that they would come back and they would bring a friend. Not because they're impressed by Access Church, but because Access Church pointed them to God. 
Not because we make a big deal about Access Church, because we make a big deal about Jesus. My vision for us as a church is that this would be a place where skeptics would feel welcomed. Where if you are somebody who would say, you know what, I, I, I don't know how you would describe yourself or the label you would put on yourself and probably the label doesn't even matter. But if I can use the word skeptic, someone who would just say, you know, I'm not sure I believe what those people believe, but I think I'm gonna go back next week because they sure did love me well. And I felt like that was a place where I could belong even while I figure out the faith thing. My vision for this church is that this is a place where parents would feel equipped, where parents would feel like, I, I, I didn't have this modeled well for me as a kid. I didn't have anybody teaching me what it looked like to have big faith and a big God, but I've got a church that has partnered with me. I've got a church that is coming alongside me, that's giving me the tools and the resources that I need. And I've downloaded the Parent Q app and I'm tracking along with what's happening in Upstreet or what's happening in student ministry. And I know that there's a group of people there who are coming alongside me and I'm not in this alone as a parent. And I feel equipped. I want this to be a church where it's easy to invite our neighbors. And I don't just mean easy because we all know where and when on Sunday morning, but I mean easy because you know that if your friends show up here, regardless of their background, regardless of their story, they are gonna be embraced, they are gonna be welcomed, they're gonna be loved. That this is a place where you know that it's gonna be predictably excellent. That the band is gonna know what they're doing and they're gonna be good at it that the message is gonna be clear and it's gonna be practical, that we're not gonna get off the rails and we're not gonna get into the world of politics or, or other things that are not our mission, but we're gonna to stick to the mission of Jesus and the change that he can bring about in our lives. I want us to be a group of people that are going public with our faith. Next week, we get to see one of those stories. I hope you come back next Sunday. It's a great story where Sandy talks about what God has done in her life and what it looked like for her to completely surrender her life to Jesus. I wanna be a group of people that are public with our faith. Our faith is supposed to be personal, but not private. It's something that we should be declaring. And whether that's getting baptized or putting a sticker on the back of your car, I don't know. But the point of that is not to make a lot of access church Look, I don't know if God's called us to be the best church in St. John's. You can have that competition with your friends when you brag about, but I do know that I wanna be the best church for St. John's. I wanna be a church where this community knows that we are for them. We're not for team access but we're for them because God is for them. God is not angry with them. God is not frustrated with them. God is for them. And we are for them as well. We wanna be the kind of church that if we were to disappear from the community, which we won't, but if we were to disappear from the community, the community would miss us. The community would say, where did Access Church go? They were doing so much good in our community. I felt like God was for us because Access Church was here in this community. This is the church that we want to be. 
And I wanna inspire you to be part of this vision with us. We're gonna continue this conversation, by the way, as we move into the new year. This is a series that we're gonna wrap up next Sunday. Next Sunday will be the last week of this series. But we're gonna kind of revisit this all through 2024 because a vision leads to a strategy. And this vision that I've just shared leads to a very specific strategy. And some of that, honestly, God's still flushing out with us. Some of that, as leadership, we would love to have you praying for staff and for elders as we're trying to figure this out. When we think about where we wanna be three years from now, we, we would love to be in a permanent facility three years from now. I don't wanna still be portable on Sunday mornings three years from now. But the strategy, the how, that's tricky, that's hard. And we don't have all that figured out yet, but we're gonna begin to give you some of our ideas and begin to give you some of our updates over this year as we build toward this because we, and, and you know what, honestly, partnering with Liberty Pines and being here at Liberty Pines has been awesome for us as a church. It's been an awesome partnership with Liberty Pines. But we've recognized too that having a facility is one way that we say in a very intentional way to our community, we're here for the long haul. We're not going anywhere. We're in this community to love you and to love your kids for a long time to come. We also think that there's some opportunities that a facility gives us to equip and empower parents and families through the week. We've talked about this before. Like if we're going to afford a facility in these times, then we need to figure out some non-traditional ways to be able to afford a facility in Northern St. Johns County. And that probably means that we have some other, like a preschool. I'm, I'm getting dangerously into the how part of right now, but I also know I don't wanna leave you guys with a lot of questions. But there's gotta be some how, there's gotta be some way that we move toward this vision. We don't have it all worked out yet, but we're gonna continue to talk about this because we believe that God has a vision for this church and for these people in this community to demonstrate that God is for you. And so the big challenge I'm putting in front of you this morning is, how will your vision inspire others to follow Jesus? the vision that you're working on. And I do want you to sketch this out and think about what your life looks like three years from now. As part of that, this is the big question. How will your vision inspire others to follow Jesus? So that when like Nehemiah, when the vision is complete, the focus isn't on the project. The focus isn't on you. The focus is on him. Will you pray with me? God, thank you so much for being a God who has designed every person in this room uniquely and individually, and yet you have a specific design for our lives that all comes back to you, to leading people to hope in you and faith in you and purpose in you. Help us to live lives that inspire people to know you. We ask all of this in your name, amen.